0: Welcome back. It's Hit Factory. Aaron here, solo on this side of the mic again. Carly is building the empire still. It's real boys' hours here on the podcast for the next couple of weeks. I warned you last week with the taking of Beverly Hills. Uh, It's the same this week. I think finally, after much delay, Carly will be back returning with us uh, for the next episode. But in the meantime, I have commissioned... Some of the finest guys, some of the best people I could think of for these episodes. Uh, And one of them is uh, this fella here on the other side of the studio from me today. Friend of the show, Matt Belenke is here. Matt, welcome back to Hit Factory.
1: Aaron, I'm honored to be here again. Uh, We're missing the number two, Carly, but uh, I'm going to try to hold the fort down as much as possible.
0: I think we're in capable hands. I think we are in... uh, We're in a good place with this one. And today we're talking about a a, a good dude movie, I think, in surprising and intricate ways. Today we are discussing the 1999 Steven Soderbergh film, The Limey. Matt, I think I told you, uh, maybe when we were discussing movies to talk about, and, and certainly before we got on mic today, that I've known about this movie for a long time. I assumed, I knew what this movie was going to be and knowing Soderbergh, knowing his craft, knowing the kind of stories that he gravitates towards. I felt like I had it down pat, you know, so to speak. I I, I felt like I kind of knew what it was going to do. Uh, And I will say that nothing could have prepared me for what the movie actually was. And just the, the intricacies of what it was actually doing, beyond just the skeleton, beyond the bones of the structure and the story of this film. Um, I've got lots more to say on it, but I, I am uh, wanting to know, because you're the one who suggested the movie to us initially and in, in kind of a short list. What does The Limey mean to you? When did you first see it? How have your feelings towards it evolved since uh, you first watched it?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to say about this film, and it is one of those movies that I started to love on on second watch. Uh, on first watch, I either didn't get it or overlooked it, or underestimated it. And I think I saw it in, you know, kind of the early 2010s, um, when I was getting into a real um, deep dive of, of films and directors filmographies. And I liked it. Um, I didn't love it. And I, I saw there was a lot of sort of complexities, and it was very lean. It was on It's only 90 minutes long. Um, but About four or five years ago, I rewatched it and I was blown away. Um, Much in the same regard as uh, No Country for Old Men also kind of had that effect on me and The Big Lebowski, where I saw them a few times or or one time. But then on second, third watch, I'm like, oh, now I get it. I'm uh, sort of engulfed by this world and these characters and this uh, milieu, so to speak. Um, But on rewatch, the limey really hit on sort of every level. It, it was funny. It was deep. Um, the The colors, the cinematography, are, is really striking, um, and not to mention the the editing, which uh, mm. I think you know we'll talk about a good amount. It, it, it's one of the takeaways of this film at the time of its release, uh, and it's one of the things that people talk about in the movie in general, is how well cut it is and how sort of well crafted um, and really innovative it is for the time. Um, but it, it is a lean, affecting, um, incredible movie. And it, it catches Soderbergh in the middle of his sort of mojo. Like he, he got his rhythm back. He found himself as a director. And you kind of see that. You see that with the beats um, and how well paced it is. And it's a real enjoy enjoyable ride
2: my name's Wilson you wrote me about my daughter this bloke she was bunked up with Terry Valentine what's he got to say for himself You tell him! Get to get what I'm after You tell him I'm coming! The day I die Tell him I'm coming! Jenny never told you about her dad. What dad? When I was in prison for nine years. He was released last month. As long as nobody can connect anything to me. I'm a really desperate man. I won't get to get what I'm after
0: This really is kind of a film that was released at sort of like the the peak of Soderbergh's career. Uh, on either side of this, you've got Out of Sight. And then following this film at the beginning of, of the 2000s, you've got Aaron Brockovich, Traffic, Ocean's Eleven, three of his biggest career successes, both critically and commercially. This one uh, feels like a bit of a, a black sheep in comparison to those. In terms of justice success, and it and it was a, a significant sort of box office bomb, uh, though critically well received. I think that your your point about it kind of being when Soderbergh finds his mojo when he gets his groove back uh, is is sound. It almost kind of feels like without this film as a a testing ground as sort of an experiment for him, he would not have found the success and had. The capacity to do those those three features on the other side of this at the beginning of the twenty first century, you know, almost almost sort of like a sacrificial lamb, so to speak. You know, one that that I think for a lot of folks who are invested in film and really care about the art form, uh, this one stands out. But uh, but for the average moviegoer, it is a little bit complex. It is a little bit more difficult than some of those other films uh, in terms of just how it's constructed. And uh, I think you're certainly right. The the editing which we'll talk much more about, um, but, but Sarah Flack, the editor here, I'm sure alongside Soderbergh himself, who probably had a, a heavy hand in, in influencing how it was going to be constructed. One of the most just mesmerizing, I think, editing jobs I've ever seen on a film.
1: Yeah. I mean, the color palette changes, the, the cuts, the jump cuts, um, the zoom-ins, everything about this movie almost shouldn't work and, and feels unorthodox or um, a bit disreputable and yet there is a continuity within the scenes and scene to scene um, it's choppy and yet it, it flows and it almost works better that way and um, one of the the key themes of this film um, even watching on you know second and third, watch is how delicate time is and how time plays into um, a character or a person's life and how it could sort of get away from you um, faster than you think. And, and before you know it, things are moving on and time has sort of passed a lot of characters in this film, um, especially uh, the main one played by Terrence Stamp. Uh, he plays a character named Wilson. Um, but yeah, the, the, the editing supports that theme and those sort of thematics that the film is working within and you don't have the same effect of um maybe the the power of his relationship wilson's relationship with his daughter um without the cutting and and without how well uh it kind of interplayed with scenes in the past um the way it used ken loach's film from the 60s called poor cow which which is another Mm -hmm. Um, sort of a cinematic tool that really hadn't been used in, in films ever. Uh, Soderbergh admitted to that fact himself. He he needed permission from Ken Loach to kind of use it. Uh, morally speaking, he uh, needed his permission. But that that was kind of unique. The the fact that there were scenes from a prior film that came out um, used as flashbacks to uh, kind of support and, and depict a character's journey. Um, but Every, every choice of this movie uh, does feel warranted. And I I can't help but um, notice Ed Lockman's cinematography. And this is the last film that Soderbergh used someone else as his DP. A- mm-hmm. af- after this, he became his own guy, um, sometimes known as Peter Andrews, uh, his, right. his pseudonym. Um, and if there is a flaw... Uh, personally for me, or if there is sort of a rough patch in his filmography, it is the look of his film. Often for me, uh, especially in his later um, feature films and, and and lately, is the like fuzziness w- w- with which uh, maybe the, the digital projection of his films looks. It's almost trying to be Fincher or something other. Um, and this film looks exquisite. It, it, it feels like you're in LA. It, it really soaks up the, the heat and, and the, the highways and the cars. Um, and I kind of miss this Soderbergh where, where he was willing to be more collaborative, I think from a cinematography perspective. And man, I mean, Ed Lockman just kind of knocks it out almost as well as Sarah Flack's editing.
0: Lockman is someone who we've uh, discussed now twice this month. He was also the director of photography on Paul Schrader's Light Sleeper, which we just covered very recently. Um, and I'm beginning to notice a theme in his work, just in how masterfully he's able to evoke a sense of place. You know, the the, the richness and, and, you know, the, the the temperature of his lighting and and all of the sort of intricacies of how he's pulling the image into the frame, yes... But this movie is a very Los Angeles film, the same way that Light Sleeper is an exceptional New York film. And you just really get a sense of a lot of that cohesion of a locale. And it brings in a lot of a, a kind of sense of, of feeling. You know, it's able to, to kind of give you a lot of that that placement, that sense of that rather than just, you know, recognizable features of of a place. He, he doesn't even really in this film go to many distinct los angeles sort of like locales you you just sort of the 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 topography and and the the warmness and sort of that kind of like haziness of the sunshine and a lot of this you you get all of that from you know abandoned lots or like warehouses or or from you know these infinity pools overlooking a canyon and things like that so uh yeah lockman is doing a a really brilliant job in this film and and i do agree with you that uh Something may have been lost in the in the inner rim. Now that Soderbergh is uh, is his own guy for pretty much everything.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah the the limey in many ways this time around really reminded me the look of it at least and kind of the feel um, and the the topics of it uh, reminded me of Memento a, a lot um, and C- Chris Nolan's film just two just a year later um, also kind of taking place uh, like you said, right there, there aren't these like LA landmarks, but they're like close enough looking to things that you'd see in other films, whether it's a, a diner or those, uh, apartment complexes with those gates, um, kind of blocking your, your, uh, your entrance. And, um, memento is also, um, kind of about the value of time and, and how we remember things, what we remember. Um, and why those things kind of stick out or or affect us in in varying ways. And uh, on third watch, um, last night of the Limey, it it really stuck out how funny it was. Um, I I remember being really funny on on rewatch, but it it was even, there were even other scenes that were having these little dialogues or these little quips between characters and everyone uh, was seemingly getting in on the act. and it does have a uh, lively sense of humor, despite sort of being a, a murder mystery in many ways, right? It's it's uh, um, about a guy who just got out of prison, he was there for nine years, and, and he's come to LA after getting a, a message or a note from Luis Guzman, um, who kind of, a, a regular from this era, um, as far as always nice to see him
0: pop into a Soderbergh movie. It really is just a joy. I, I love, uh, you know, Greendale community college alum, Luis mm-hmm. Guzman.
1: Yep. Shout out. Um, he is a pleasure and I feel like him and Steve Zane, um, or Steve Zahn, when they appeared in a movie around this era, it, it kind of made it better or, uh, more amusing and, and, and obscure. But, um, he, he receives this note from him and he arrives in LA kind of searching to, to find out what happened to his daughter. Apparently she fell asleep at the wheel and died, but he clearly thinks there's something more to it. There's uh, there's something more nefarious or something people aren't telling him. And um, so it begins this uh, clash between these two kind of older men from completely different backgrounds from sides of the world who um, are both living in the past in many ways. Um, and in, from, from various kind of angles, so one man in, in Wilson is kind of recounting his relationship with his daughter and how he kind of saw her in increments, as he describes it. And then there's Peter Fonda, who um, plays the producer and ex-boyfriend of his daughter, who is living through the 60s, where, where he seemed to make out the most money.
0: Yeah, this is a great place to start with these performances, I think. Um Terence Stamp obviously, the the lead here Wilson doing phenomenal work. His you know, very lively cockney accent. Um and he is, he's so funny. A lot of the the film's humor comes from his sort of colloquialisms that you can't really tell you know are are these things that are sort of uniform and ubiquitous in his sort of like culture or these things that he just made up that he anticipates people to go along with. Like he refers to Luis Guzman as uh, his China because it's China plate mate, you know, kind of rhymes. There's another one like that, that that escapes me now, but all of these. Oh, it's it's a, a butcher's hook have have a butcher, which mm-hmm. it, for, for him means a look, right? A look around mm-hmm. um, and and <laughs> they, they have a, a good sense of fun. Just consistently kind of having you sort of try to follow along with whatever the fuck it is that he's saying. There's also a, a really excellent Bill Duke cameo in this movie that that's predicated on that single punchline of, of, you know, <laughs> Terrence Stamp not really uh, making much sense often throughout the film. Um, but But his juxtaposition with Peter Fonda is one in the movie that I think works marvelously just at a, a textual level yes you know these two aging men um, who are able to imbue both of their characters with such this sense of like th- there's there's a sort of regret there there's a, a ruminative ruminative quality to them that uh, you just feel like topically in the way that they look at the world and the way that they kind of reflect and and of course the way that the editing sort of features many scenes where we just see their faces, you know, sort of in contemplation, even as dialogue is going on sort of in the in the sort of diegesis and in the uh, kind of voiceover. Right. The the cutting sort of presents these dialogues separate and apart from what's happening in the frame often. Uh, But when we're talking about this, we also need to talk about sort of the metatextual quality of these two aging men as well one of them stamp sort of representing uh an era of british new wave film and peter fonda of course you know one of his uh, sort of most singular roles uh in easy rider as being representative of the heyday of like the new american cinema in the late 60s and early 70s Certainly, this is purposeful, certainly that the, these men are here and, and Soderbergh is playing with this idea and, and kind of ruminating on this past and, and what these two men represent, uh, not just within the themes of the film, but also because of their legacies.
1: Yeah, t- totally. I, um, especially with Peter Fonda, in many ways, his character almost feels like uh, the Easy Rider character if he hit it big or if he made it I- in Hollywood. Absolutely. What- what would have happened? Um, How would he have sort of uh, siphoned off or or, uh, benefited from the L.A.-ness and and the Hollywood culture um, that was instilled in in the 60s at the time? And, you know, speaking of Fonda, this movie has two or three of the best character intros I've I've ever seen in a feature film. And (laughs) um, the first being Peter Fonda's where... uh, the Hollies song plays and, um, it almost gives Peter Fonda a montage. I I don't think I've ever seen that in a feature film where the the intro scene for someone is a montage of of that character in, in various, um, settings and, and, and looks, some of which are foreshadowed, um, during it. And we kind of get a great, um, idea. You alluded to the, the house with the pool overlooking the Hollywood Hills. Um, I mean that house is immaculate, and uh, another testament to the location scouting uh, of this film, and, and how um, affecting that could be, even. And because we spend a lot of time at this house, and so there's some key scenes that that happened there, and they also kind of give us an idea for the or yeah you know, for the type of money that we're working with um, when it comes to Fonda's character and 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 who he is, but um, his speech to his, his girlfriend, who kind of looks like a Denise Richards lookalike. I don't know if they couldn't get Denise Richards, so they cast um, this young lady. But he, she's in the bathtub, and he's cleaning his teeth out with, with a toothpick, and uh, And it. he kind of um, romanticizes the 60s in, in a quick speech to her, and, and it's incredible. Um, and she's inquisitive about it, and he, he kind of gives her a backdrop for what happened how it went down and, and his uh love for for that time and for those days um and it does kind of make you wonder or, or realize that maybe peter fonda's time is also up in, in a way right there it's becoming a young man's game and uh p- people are coming to his party there's a big party scene um and they're asking him whether he like worked on the Christopher Cross album and, how, and how, that, <laughs> how, how that was like, and he's like, I just did business affairs. I didn't even do anything. That, that's sort of amusing, the, the, the old money uh, playing with the new sort of ways how, um, yes, times were good at one point, times were really good, but they may be coming to an end for reasons he can't control.
0: Yeah, that that scene with Peter Fonda and uh Amelia Heinley, his his sort of new girlfriend who is kind of a like a you know dead ringer for Melissa George who plays Jenny uh Terrence Stamps uh character's daughter, right? Like it's it's mm-hmm. just sort of it gives this I don't know really villainous quality of just sort of like cycling through women that are all the same, right? And disposing of one of them for the other. This this very sort of like you know, ugly churn of the Hollywood system, so to speak. Um, But when he's talking to her about the 60s, the way he describes it, uh, if I'm, I'll paraphrase it here, but he says something along the lines of that it feels like a dream that, you know, you're sort of wandering around in that, uh, you know, is sort of this other world or this other country or whatever, but you know the language, right? You're fully fluent in how to navigate it. And what he's describing is very clearly just nostalgia, right? You know, mm-hmm. it, it is a a manifestation of something bygone, something that you can sort of reflect back on that feels purposeful and that you can add and, and prescribe this meaning to, but that at the time, you know, probably played out a lot like present did you know there there were these peaks and valleys to it and he's even you know it. he undercuts himself too as he's there you know flossing his teeth and you know picking at his face where he you know gives this very lyrical very beautiful kind of reflection on what what it felt like and then catches himself and says and it wasn't even the, the entirety of the 60s it was just 66 and a little bit of 67 there for a minute you know
1: right yeah there's such specificity with which we remember time and we romanticize it and sort of uh nostalgify if i can create a word um moments in our own lives and uh that kind of neatly mirrors wilson's experience i think with remembering his daughter uh, throughout the film and in flashbacks because um, at one point, the uh, the acting teacher with whom he sort of strikes up a relationship um, and, and a friendship, she says, "You know, he he, um, your daughter called you uh, Wilson or Daddy, the friendly ghost." You, you were absent uh, in in kind of the key years and important times in her life. Um, but from our flashbacks uh, through his character, we always we almost think that's the opposite, or the opposite is true that he he was there. Um, and, uh, or that he has some memory of her, there was some perception. The Peter, that Peter Fonda scene, I think n- encapsulates the movie in, in many ways and uh, kind of s- sort of sums up a character uh, really well in, in just a few lines and sentences. Um, and uh, his security guard, his uh, sort of security officer manager guy played by uh, Barry Newman. Mm-hmm um is is fantastic (laughs) and he's also got several um great lines where he's he's warning peter fonda about um somewhat this this crazy guy came in and and shot everyone up and he said i'm coming he's i'm coming tell him i'm coming for him or to that effect and and they're kind of analyzing who who's who are they talking about or who's he referring to (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then the, the panic ensues. Um, but the the number of side roles you, you mentioned Bill Duke. Um, in a film like this that can be obscured by the kind of tonality and the structure, you you need supporting cast members that um, steal a scene uh, and, and kind of add add a little bit something different, which they do. I think everyone, the characters are, there is was a through line of humor in them, and yet they're very different. They're, they almost come from different worlds or different sides of uh, um, law enforcement, and, and yet they um, instill a kind of a, a real energy that I, I found just um, totally special.
0: Yeah, and you know all, all of those characters having this kind of sort of disparate association or, or, or even none whatsoever with one another kind of plays into again this this you know great theme that S- Soderberg is playing around with here you know this sort of like displacement of this character every everything in the movie is sort of about Wilson as a character now without any sort of anchor to civilian life you know having just been released from prison with without Jenny his daughter there anymore uh he is you know just kind of displaced he is he's dissociated from anything that could sort of be called a a normal existence uh and and you see that reflected even as you mentioned in the character choices here and 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 in the actors who are portraying them in the way that they perform their scenes everything sort of feels like it is is all of these different kinds of existences sort of crashing into one another
1: yeah and wilson's character um he's almost putting together the pieces of of his daughter's life by way of the people he meets. They're almost his sole um, information sources for, for the, the person she was, who she lived with, um, and kind of the r- result of where she ended up. Uh, and Eduardo, who's played by Lu- Luis Guzman, is sort of the first um, person he meets and, and and strikes up a friendship with. And then Elaine, played by... Leslie Ann Warren in a really strong role as the the former acting coach uh, of his daughter Jenny, and clearly Jenny had something about her personality that that made her likable, um, not only through Terry Valentine, which was Fonda's character, but through Elaine and through Eduardo. That there there was a a personality or a certain affectation um, that we see that she had on these people, and and. Uh, I think one of the the creepiest things was how Jenny's portrait, which uh, Wilson stole from Terry's house, was still hanging um, up at, at the house, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and Terry actually noticed it when when they came up the second floor. Um, but there is a there is kind of a, a musicality to the way the film. Um, is both about Wilson finding out who his daughter was and and where she ended up, but also finding out about him and, and where, you know, kind of how far he's come and, and the things he's missed out in, in his life. Um, first of which is his relationship with, with, uh, with Jenny, his daughter, but also um, perhaps this kind of a uh, romantic side that he strikes up with Elaine and, and kind of the, all, all the, all the bits of being a human, in some ways, whether those r- relationships are romantic or or friendly, um, he's getting a full sense of being a human again and, and functioning in, in a um, in a non-prison setting because he, he you know he just spent a, a nine-year term there, um, and uh, there is like a Jason Bourne esque quality to uh, Wilson having to rehabilitate himself um, and find a sense of purpose in a place that's totally alien to him um, and as far away from uh, the UK as you can, you can imagine. And uh, and yet, there is a sense that um, he does seem to belong in this, or he does seem to have higher morals or uh, better qualities um, than a lot of the, the henchmen and the the criminals that circle, that circle him, that he's uh, targeting and that they target him. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's, uh, it's it's a rich film and, and I, um, I truly love the, I think the, the acting coach performance can, um, on, those, on this third watch kind of stuck struck out to me uh, more than usual or more than the first two times. I, I, I really gravitated towards them.
0: Yeah, I, I like the point that you're making, Matt, about, you know, the, the ways in which he is sort of, uh, Wilson is sort of piecing together the existence of his daughter through all of these different disparate characters and, and you know, recognizing the intricacies of this person he barely knew. It's reflected, you know, in in the way that the film is composed and edited to where you almost get this this sort of lesson in the kind of metatextual quality of filmmaking where this technique that's often employed to show and foster like a connection between the present and the past in a character, these these flashes of memory uh, are almost kind of used to undercut that sense of familiarity where we see, you know, that you've already mentioned those those very intricate and very eye-popping Flashback sequences of Jenny as a little girl that we keep seeing that Terrence Stamp keeps remembering, whether it's at the beach or at home. Later on, we see ones of you know her uh, in in a very detailed story that will will pay dividends uh, about her, you know, frequently threatening to call the police on him when she caught wind of of a crime he was about to commit. We begin to realize over the course of the film that those fragments aren't you know all of these memories flooding in to him, driving him and giving him purpose, we realize they're all the memory he has of his daughter. It it really is that fragmented. He doesn't have a cohesive and holistic picture of who his child is, that it is just these moments. And he's clinging to them so desperately because he's been robbed of any opportunity to repair that relationship with her gone, you know, with, with her dead. And... I think it's just brilliant the way, you know, like we we talked about like all all the formal and stylistic components of this movie along the way sort of start to kind of comment on themselves. And and it's a film that sort of trains you how to watch it and how to receive it over the course of its runtime.
1: Yeah. It's so true with kind of the, the fragmented moments or, or memories that come to Wilson throughout the film. And it gets at, sort of the, the, the key theme or the key, I, I think, idea of the movie in that it's not really about how she was murdered or why she was murdered, but the journey of learning who she was in the first place, who, who was the person who got murdered, why does he even care um, about the the result and his conversations with, with the through the various characters and seeing the places and the people that she lived with and dealt with. Kind of, I think. Finally, by the end, by the time he, by the time Peter Fonda admitted and told him the story about how she threatened to call the cops on him, um, and how he, you know, kind of accidentally banged her head um, or purposely banged her head on the wall, and then and then she died. That was kind of a aha moment for Wilson. Uh, he saw um, kind of connections or mirror images of. The things that she threatened with him and that that was kind of a a tell sign that he and terry valentine aren't so different the the way kind of time i think interlopes um with the humor i i think the key to this film is that it is a neo-noir um that sort of inner genre interplay i think is really rare in in neo-noirs in general and how he pulls that off with a screenwriter who um, was kind of known for a lot of different things. Lem Doms had worked on dark city, which is a sci-fi movie, which is a fantastic film. Mm -hmm. Um, And he worked on Kafka with, with Soderbergh. But there, there is a lot of, I think he is paying homage to, to films like point blank, the, the John Borman film um, from 67 and, obviously with, to the Ken Loach film, that, which clips of we see throughout the movie, but there is a innovative aspect. There is a progressive um, theme happening through this movie as well, as if it's trying to kind of push the envelope. Uh, and as much as we romanticize and as much as he evokes past films and, and past directors that he likes, um, I think he's also trying to do something really different and, and, and it works. Uh, and a lot of that's to do with kind of Wilson and and the type of character and the world he built around him.
2: You have the same posters.
1: What?
3: That you have down at your office.
2: No, they're different. Well, I like the colors. We all did. Mm, Must have been a time, huh? And golden moment. Have you ever dreamed about a place you never really recalled being to before? A place that maybe only exists in your imagination? Someplace far away half-remembered when you wake up. When you were there, though, you knew the language. Oh, it was the 60s. No. It wasn't that either. It was just 66 and
0: early 67. That's all it was. Soderbergh is never somebody who, you know, I, I would never accuse him of making long movies or even over long movies uh m- most of his films fall somewhere between like that that beautiful like 90 minute runtime and you know just just eclipsing two hours um he I, I guess che you know maybe being like one of the notable exceptions here you know he has kind of filmed epic over two parts but this film you know when i when i first put it on i was like i'm surprised at how lean this is just catching the runtime. Until you actually watch the machinations of it and realize how much fucking work it probably takes to even get to that like 88 minutes uh, of, of this runtime. Not to mention, you know, as we've already kind of said a couple of times, the labor it puts on the audience to receive it. It's a film that, upon first watch, definitely requires you to. Get into its rhythms. It takes its time, and and it requires time from you as well in order to kind of get what it's doing. And by the end, you know, I'm not you know calling this the most difficult watch ever either. You know, like it it certainly isn't like you know it it's not slow cinema by any means. It's not like highly experimental, but it is within you know a, a certain form and a certain genre something that is taking on a style and taking on a formal sort of experiment that feels unfamiliar enough that you almost at at first sort of resist it until you accept what it's doing and then acknowledge the ways in which what it's doing is actually a commentary on on the purpose thematically of the film's
1: existence yeah totally and we can also mention sort of the fact that this film came out in 1999 which um was a big movie year the books have been written there there's a great book by brian raftery called the best movie year ever 1999 and uh, the last time i came on uh you, you know your podcast was to talk about summer of sam uh another 99 release and um there is something about this year where the the deeper you look, the the more, um, or the deeper the bench gets, uh, so to speak, whether it's like ravenous uh, or the limey um, or frequency, which we uh, DM'd about. I, I uh, offered it up as a choice to discuss today. But um, there is something kind of mystical or, or, or magical about, this year and you know in in reading the themes of this film um this film kind of wanted to discuss the turning point that was the 60s in in some ways that that how there was a moment in in uh, terry valentine's life um and in wilson's life where there was a things were looking up maybe things were more uplifting and positive and and they had a, a a rhythm to them um, and a hope, a hopefulness to them. Um, and 1999 also was the marking of a, a decade, um, the end of a decade. And there was a lot of fear in studios at the time in Hollywood that Y2K was actually a real thing. And that's what the the book Best Year Ever talks about, the fact that <laughs> um, studios were dishing out, you know, $50 million to David o. Russell to make Three Kings or... Uh, to Spike Jones to make being John Malkovich because there was a legit fear that maybe the world was ending. Maybe the, <laughs> the that um, this was as good as we were going to get. And uh, David Fincher, you deserve your 60 mil for Fight Club, so go make it. <laughs> um, and I, I, I like how the Limey fits into that context of those films that are maybe talking about um, ideas that are more mature than that year or, or ahead of its time. Um, but this is a film that really shrewdly looks back on it, L- looks back on the, both the characters, um, but also um, the history and sort of the decades that happened many years prior. And I, I appreciate that a lot about the Lime.
0: Absolutely. You know, we talk about 1999 as, as sort of this, you know this big movie year often on the show. I think we've also on the show before actually argued that 97 might be the real 99 of, <laughs> of the decade just in, in terms of the, the, the films that we find that that we truly love. Um, not that we don't, you know, love the the Ravenices and uh, the summer of Sam's and, and fight clubs and things like that of the world as well. A lot of movies are either looking forward with this sort of sense of uh paranoia and concern and anxieties around things while others still, and sometimes in the same movie, uh, are also questioning the very sort of like fabric of society and the textures of it that have come uh, with, you know, neoliberal supremacy over the last decade and asking like, is is this really all there is? Or is this even real at all? Uh, and I think the Limey, you know, kind of has a different read on this sort of end of a decade, end of an era kind of quality. I think as you uh, put very well, Matt, that it's one that sort of is is looking backward rather than forward, but doing so with a a distinct sense of purpose. As you said, it kind of undercuts that sort of rosy nostalgia. It sort of uh, is meant to kind of eviscerate our perspective on what that time period meant and what that sort of inflection point revealed about ourselves and about the world at large. Uh, And in a sense too, almost feels like it kind of gives us a much more hopeful read on the future uh, as as part of that prospect. You know, it, it is one that leaves things very open by the film's conclusion. And, you know, again, we, we talk about the, the editing of this movie the ending of the film is also the beginning of the film chronologically it's a point in the movie that we actually had not even seen yet you know wilson is is on this plane headed towards los angeles talking to this woman about you know just getting out of the joint and you know having to be taken taken to la for for this you know reason that he's he's not being particularly explicit about uh, and meanwhile, we are having that moment intercut with him saying his goodbyes to Luis Guzman, uh, and to Leslie Ann Warren's character. Again, they could, they come just sort of crashing into one another at the same time here. And we see that there is, you know, both this, it's just this, you know, flattening of time where there is at the beginning of things an opportunity for things already to be sort of written differently than they have before. Likewise, with the end of the movie where the conclusion is really uncertain, except that we know that he is, you know, sort of returning in a sense, probably to a, a more familiar home with with a future uncertain, but uh, but having found something in the process.
1: Yeah, n- no, that's that's exactly right. I think there's a, a sense of the film being about nostalgia as a form of both punishment and catharsis. He is both punishing, I think, himself, but also talking it through. Uh, the other characters who he develops relationships with. There is like a sense of of therapy um, in his discussions with uh, with Leslie Ann Warren's character um, and Eduardo, uh, where he's. He's coming to terms um, w- with with his past um, by kind of just talking it through, just just kind of rehashing moments that, that happened to him. Um, but it is sweet to see if a film where kind of uh, notes and writing, um, much in the same way as Memento, play a role. And the, you know, cell phones aren't as developed and technology isn't as advanced at this point. Um, but I, I do think back to Wilson uh, fighting with the kind of warehouse manager guy and stealing the Terry Valentine's address. I, I do like those little uh, details that are that are thrown in the film. And especially for someone who's an outsider, it feels more uh, tangible that, that he can kind of um, communicate and, and travel through L.A., not by MapQuest, but by Perhaps Eduardo's assistants, who who knows the city well, or um, through these addresses and, and, and names that that he has, uh, I, I do I do think that kind of improves the the plot and it kind of uh, it, it gives it a sense of of wonder that maybe technology nowadays, especially in films, has kind of canceled out or eliminated.
0: And and I think that you're you're so right about you know just the. The reward of the film kind of piecing together for us the pictures of Terrence Stamp's memory and of the things that he he kind of lost out on by being in prison. It's no accident, I think, that the question that opens the film uh, in, in voiceover and that Terrence Stamp asks to Peter Fonda uh, when he confronts him at the end of this film is really the same one that he asks to everybody friend or foe in the movie which is tell me about her tell me about jenny you know he's he's not asking for the whys that, that she died he's not asking for you know him to apologize or to make it right or or you know like, he he wants to know about his daughter and he's asking everybody he can this sort of like almost desperate plea like tell me anything that I can find out about her, that I can latch onto, that I can, that I can take and and make a part of of mine and my understanding of her. E- even in that scene with with Bill Duke, he's sort of you know the the back and forth. Great scene, by the way. I, I want to talk a little bit more about it because I think that it's important. But, uh, you know, Bill Duke eventually just you know kind of gives him sort of the plot up to that point and catches him up, and he sort of tells Darren Stamp. The only thing I don't know at this point is what part your daughter all played in this. And Terrence Stamp says likewise, that's what I'm trying to find out. That's all that's all I want to know. And so there is this really, you know, fantastic, fun, catchy, you know, neo-noir plot with a lot of verve and a lot of kind of spice to it. It ends in a cacophony of like unintentional violence the way that a lot of these movies do that is like really rewarding and exciting. Uh, but it's, but it's all kind of centrally spun around this one thing, which is just the longing to know somebody whose life you missed out on and who you don't have an
1: opportunity to
0: know more of.
1: Yeah. And, and that's always uh, such an effective kind of plot device to, um, at least for the viewer, while watching a film that is sort of structurally um, different and, uh, than, than other films we need some sense of maybe mystery or uh, some sense of kind of destination for where a character's going and, and where the story is headed. Um, and what you're talking about is just that, right? It's the, who is this character? Um, and luckily as an audience, we're we're doubly finding out about both Wilson and his daughter kind of uh, in, in conjunction, who, who were these two people, um, and, and kind of what lives that they live, how do they play off of each other. Um, and we, we mentioned it briefly earlier on, but I, I do appreciate also how a lot of directors have their kind of LA movie, some directors have all LA movies, or most, whether you're Tarantino or PTA, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> you, you, you kind of, which makes sense, uh, given that they both grew up um, in in that area and in the valley, um, or around it, but a lot of outsider directors also kind of have their Los Angeles film, and and whether it's Robert Altman with the Long Goodbye, or the Coens with the Big Lebowski, or Noah Baumbach with Greenberg, which doesn't fall into the same kind of a category um, as the others, but it, it's still kind of his take on LA and, and, and the, the West coast, um, atmosphere that, that, that city creates and envelops. Um, and Soderbergh by giving us a mystery, um, and almost like a whodunit, uh, with, with a British character at the helm manages to, um, make the city sort of a, a key aspect of it and, and, and kind of gets at all the little things that make LA kind of uh, unique or, or the kind of uh, capture um, both a, a sense of place but, but also kind of a, a sense of personality um, in terms of how uh, in the media or the music producing and, and film um, and film adjacent people, everyone sort of intermingles and, and runs around each other in it um and the the locations the the hollywood hills um Luis guzman's character we we immediately kind of see that um he's he's just like making mexican food in 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 the in the backyard of his house and and it's very well decorated um and you're in southern california so that makes sense um he's giving us a flavor for every almost every type of personality and, and these kind of um the dumb security guards kind of who are arguing about what a sliding scale is. Also they're kind of like. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I I do like how, to your point earlier, um, it's not like the there's no Hollywood sign, uh, there's no Santa Monica Pier, and yet there are parts that kind of look alike and, and, and you, you kind of feel with the characters, you kind of feel with them in this world. And the key thing is you feel like an outsider traveling in this place for the first time, which is exactly what Wilson is doing, which is exactly, I think, what Soderbergh wants us to feel like. Um, many times, right, the, a city or a place can, can feel just as his life, it's fragmented. There are moments or things that we need to see that are important. We don't need to see the whole um, enchilada, so to speak, but these moments are enough. Oh, God. I don't suppose you prefer steady income, hmm? I've got steady
2: income. I'm an adult. They got me down as an immigrant with five kids. <laughs> yeah. Jenny spoke fondly of her imaginary siblings. Do you even remember the last time you saw her? I remember every time I saw her. I watched her grow up in increments. She told me you were a ghost in her life. Daddy, the friendly ghost. She was always threatening me. Can you imagine? If you're naughty, Dad, I'll put the law on you, promise. She didn't want me to get sent down again, see? And if she got wind that I was planning something, I'll shock you, Dad. I promise, I'll shop ya. I can see her picking up the phone. Look, Dad, I'm calling the old Bill right now. Came and saw a joke between us, Sonny. Wasn't really.
0: She never would've turned you in.
2: Not in a million years. Oh, I know that. But as time went on, well, when in ever-decreasing circles, The joke wore off. she had a feeling about this last joke. How long I'd get banged up for. Said she wouldn't be around this time when I got out.
0: And she wasn't. I want to and because you know this this film as we said you know compresses and stretches time and throws us in four different places at once i want to talk about two moments at the same time (laughs) in this film uh that i i think are so resonant and so important to me which is the bill duke scene and the the conclusion of this film in the bill duke scene terrence stamp walks into the office and just goes on a run and tells this really long-winded, very fast-talking story about his time in prison, about you know confronting this guy that he had it in for when he was in the clink, and uh, you know the fact that he could have killed him but decided he did he wasn't going to, and all of this stuff. And it ends with a pitch-perfect line delivery from Bill Duke. Again, I will paraphrase here, but saying, "I'm only uh, there's only one thing." I don't understand. And what I don't understand is every motherfucking word you just said. Uh, it's hilarious. It's funny. It, it gives a great kind of indication of the tone of, of this film at its its most comedic moments. But it's in response to a lesson that Terrence Stamp has internalized that really, I feel like, is sort of uh, a Rosetta Stone <laughs> to the ending of the film. And when he's talking about confronting this man who he, you know, initially thought that he wanted to kill and that he had an opportunity to kill when he was finally out of jail, he says, what I thought I wanted wasn't what I wanted. What I thought I was thinking about was something else. It didn't matter. See, because you get to make a choice when to do something and when to let it go, when it matters and when it don't. Bide your time. That's what prison teaches you if nothing else. Bide your time and everything becomes clear. You can act accordingly. And I think about that moment as we get to the ending of the film when it becomes so clear to him that Peter Fonda's character, you know, even though he has committed this this horrible crime and and taken his daughter from him, there's this connection between the two. There's this symmetry and sort of synchronicity between their existences that could not be further from one another in terms of, you know, their their locales and and their actual specific understanding of the world. But Stamps' character begins to realize how much he's responsible as well for the conditions of Jenny's life that led her to the point that ultimately killed her. And again, you know, this, this movie is one that tells us more in its images, in its editing, in its formal qualities than it ever does in its dialogue. And I think that this is one of those moments where it gives us a little bit of both. The dialogue does inform the film, but it's at a time far removed and in a place that feels completely inconsequential to that decisive moment at the climax of the movie.
1: That's really well said, especially with regard to kind of the, the editing. You almost need those time jumps and those fragmented memories, um, and shots to empathize with Wilson's character, um, to understand why he's thinking these things and, and, and why he's internalizing these, the moments that he went through. Um, and that final scene, he realizes there is a lot, as you noted with the synchronicity, um, between his character and and Peter Fonda's, wh- where there is more to it than just finding out how she died, why she died, who did it, you know, was it was it intentional, was it not? Um, th- there is a moment where, y- you know, with with his conversation with Bill Duke, there is a foreshadowing there, right? He's he's telling the story about the guy he decides not to kill after prison. Um, and he comes back around to do the same thing with with Peter Fonda, right? He he could have had his comeuppance, um, and he chose not to. Um, and at that point, it's a, a film that, or the film goes from being a revenge movie or a revenge story to being something else. It's almost uh, um, a revenge on on the lead character himself, right? It, it's almost. Um, Guilting him into, as you noted, uh, the choices that he made as a father and uh, as an absent father most of the time. Um, But the relationship that he had with with Jenny uh, throughout his life and uh, and back going back to Bill Duke's scene, um, if you talk to people about this film um, or the friends that I've convinced to watch this movie, that'll be the first thing they bring up to me is is Bill Duke's <laughs> line reading. <laughs> um, so that's a testament to how uh, amazing it is. But um, it, the death stare with which he says it too uh, while looking at Terrence Stamp um, is is pure brilliance. Um, but uh, again, right, the Bill Duke is in that scene, he's, he's talking about The fact that he just wants to know where the money is often if you follow the money and i'm paraphrasing you'll you'll get to where you want to be you'll get to the the main source um and again there is sort of a a symmetry um and a a parallel kind of universe or or effect in those two characters uh, those two middle-aged men um who are on different sides of the law but they they both want something and they don't really care how how it happens. They they want a result to take place and they kind of know what, what the what what the key arrival point is. Um, and uh, you you alluded to the the final scene of the film where where we we see the final clips of the Ken Loach film Poor Cow being played. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's a really sweet moment because the. He's, he's playing a song, I believe on, on guitar a couple a couple seconds. Um, and it, it's almost like a signing off point for, for the film in some ways, right this all these memories, all these worries, um, all this uh, nostalgia that, that he's had for his life that's affected him that has sort of spiral his brain and um, help him create the image. And the the person that Jenny was, they kind of come to a culmination in, in that one single moment with him playing that song and, and letting the movie run. Um, and for the first time, I think we we don't see voiceover kind of describing what, what the scene or what's happening in the scene, and um, that is really powerful because um, there is an an emotion connected to that character and the. Um, the innocence of youth kind of uh, shines through in, in that moment, how there was a point um, at which Wilson was someone else. He wasn't yet the the kind of uh, the, the criminal he became and, and the person he was, um, he eventually turned into. Um, that time uh, does have varying, varying sort of changes and, and effects on people. and And that, moment in just a few seconds and in just a, a clip from another film totally encapsulated that so well. Um, and it's such a choice to do that. And, um, man, I mean, yeah, that, that, that was a knockout that kind of hits you and, uh, it's, it's really good.
0: I think it's brilliant. And it also, I think, you know, harkens back to that inflection point, that moment in his life before he became this you know, seasoned criminal, and you know, spent a, a majority of the rest of his life in jail. It displays it as something not fixed and not grafted specifically to a time period. That it's a almost mentality that he can find again, and and we end the movie in a similar place at an inflection point where he's free to make a decision to change something in his future. Yeah, it's it's a movie that I think transcends anything that could possibly be on the page uh and and really just kind of becomes something that must exist as a film with all of its different formal components all working in conjunction aimed at this one theme which brings me to an interesting point about the relationship between Steven Soderbergh and Lem Dobbs
3: this is really the root of our this is really our main argument uh that we have had before, and uh, um, and will have again. And will have again. Um, the the lack of character detail and human relationships and backstory for all of the characters in the film. Um, so you know, when I read reviews that say style over substance, uh, you blame me. Uh, I yeah, I blame you, and I I can't actually say they're wrong. Luckily, uh, there have been relatively few of those reviews. The reviews have been on the whole marvelous. Uh, I'm thrilled to see and say, but. Uh, You know, the reviews that make me angry, of course, are the ones that do blame me, that say style over substance and uh, underwritten script uh, by me, uh, which I think is incorrect because I think there was a lot of detail in the script in terms of just those issues and elements uh, that you have a tendency to back away from. So perhaps you'd like to use this opportunity to discuss your problem with human relationships and interpersonal
1: Uh, connections. uh, Yeah, this is a great time and place. I just think it depends on the piece. I've certainly made movies that are about nothing but that. Um, I think I felt that for what I was trying to do and, and the kind of film it was, which um, is a, a genre film that, um, I don't know, I didn't want to stray very far from what I thought was the spine of the film. And that was really just him and his daughter.
0: After the Bill Duke scene the other thing that people always tell me about when they talk about the limey is the dvd commentary track for this film uh that is (laughs) recorded between steven soderbergh and screenwriter lem dobbs the two seem to have a very trusting uh, and and fruitful working relationship, as you mentioned already, Matt. They worked together on Kafka before this. They would go on to work together again on Haywire, uh, starring the once promising Gina Carano in a, in a very good action role. Actually, I, I, I quite like that movie. Um, but the commentary track really is about, you know, it it, it is ninety minutes of these two arguing in defense of their own sort of visions of the movie and Dobbs not really pulling any punches about the things that Soderbergh changed, excluded, uh, you know, uh, omitted or revised in his original draft of the, of the screenplay and some resentment he has about it. It never, you know, I think boils over into like sheer animosity, uh, but it is a very interesting conversation tonally where you feel like it might explode at any given moment um and never really does but but what a fascinating listen in in a couple of those choice clips
1: yeah th- that commentary track is a must listen um i've uh i've listened to it once before and i remember it being as you described one of the most heated commentary <laughs> tracks you'll you'll ever uh encounter or, or come across um, and a, it's curious that you know Soderbergh didn't take any writing credit for the film, um, even though after listening to the track, you'd think that he kind of cut out at least half the movie, it seems like, from what, <laughs> from what, from what Dobbs wanted it to be. Um, but it's even more curious that they worked again together. And uh, we mentioned it earlier, but, but there is a sense of both, how do you tell a story that's humor-filled, that also has um emotion um and that is also a little bit darker or that has higher stakes than maybe the dialogue can portend and i feel, feel like that's what one of the hardest um things to pull off or one of the hardest sort of uh screenwriting feats is how do you balance that tonality um h- how do you uh impact a film in in, in so many different uh digressions and Because typically, you know, in neo-noir films, especially of the 90s, there is a sort of one note that they play with, and and it's not a bad thing. Um, In fact, it kind of helps out a lot of the time, whether it's um, Devil in a Blue Dress, right, or One False Move, Mm -hmm. Um, both Carl Franklin picks, shout out. Um, But, you know, whether it is playing in the neo-noir genre, that there is a... Um, aspect to to being more serious and, and being a little bit more moody. Um, I think what Len Dobbs added is exactly what Soderbergh was missing ear- earlier in his career in, in the '90s when he had some misses when he perhaps was going for stuff that was a little bit more serious or that was trying to be maybe Empire of the Sun when he made King of the Hill. Right there was an aspect where <laughs> he was gunning for the Oscars. Um, and he was gunning for films that had higher acclaim value than films that were actually good and that were well suited for his skill set as, as a director. Um, and, you know, Soderbergh was, was notable for saying after he won the Pomodoro at Con for Sex, Lies, and Videotape, he was like, This is as good as, as it's going to get for me. It, it's never going to be, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, th- th- this good again. He was being facetious, but. Um, there, there was sort of a kind of a, a truth to that un- until he found himself a, as a director. And I think um, working with Lem Dobbs, again, especially in this format, um, I think Dobbs is a great sort of follow-up uh, to Scott Frank in Out of Sight, where th- these are two um, writers who are able to kind of not only genre hop or, or genre switch but also um uh dialogue wise they're they're able to lighten um or uplift films that i think previously um especially that decade in the, in the 90s were more um kind of wearisome and, and, and tiring and uh i do think that their relationship dobbs and soderbergh has proven fruitful um and Hay- and Haywire, like you said, that's I mean, that's a great kind of another lean action movie that y- you're you're in and out um, despite a, a killer cast. It's it's terrific.
0: Yeah, I, I I do think that their you know consistent collaboration and their ability to you know kind of rectify and mend whatever tensions or resentments may have been there after this film, uh, really does speak to I think just the thoughtfulness of of Soderbergh when it comes to his craft and i think that that is you know the other thing that people you know either either miss or or maybe you know gets kind of undermined by the by the conflict kind of central to that commentary track which is despite dobbs's frustrations Soderbergh as always is an incredibly eloquent and articulate filmmaker who's able to justify every single decision that he makes and there's very few if any of these moments where Dobbs calls something out as something he wished was left in or something that was changed or something that he, he you know he he had imagined differently that Soderberg doesn't have a very thoughtful answer and justification for doing the way that he did it and i think that the results speak for themselves in terms of when you watch the film it is it's mesmerizing stuff. It really is an incredible watch and through a lot of those omissions through that kind of opaque fragmented quality of the story and, and the the kind of backdrop that I think Dobbs was really arguing in defense of you get a a stronger film thematically.
1: Yeah. And it feels like a film that um, it has a fluidity to it that, other, you know, Soderbergh has, is notorious for experimenting a lot with whether it's various, I guess, film stocks or um, both themes in his films and, and the type of work he's doing. He just likes to churn them out. And when he retires, he doesn't really mean it. He, he likes to come back. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to oh.
0: say, he the man's made... More films now post retirement than than a lot of filmmakers have made in their entire careers, you know that are that are twice as long. So, totally, really? yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. He, he he's collecting the four hundred one k, but also, uh, yeah, uh, churning them out at at an expedient rate um, and being successful with them. But th- there there is a um, with the limey, there there is a film that. Yes, he's experimenting, I think, especially in terms of the editing and the, and the, uh, the way the, the film is written and uh, expressed um, to us, through us, or to us, rather, through images. Um, but what, what he sort of maybe doesn't do as much of or hasn't done as much of since um, is a sense of, of a film completely um, in contact with, with its characters that is totally in sync. That's what I get from watching The Limey. Um, and it's funny to hear the the banter and the commentary um, and, and the sort of tension that was built with what was included and what wasn't because it does feel like a film when you watch it that everything fits really well. And in, in a film where Uh, It's easy to screw it up based on the number of flashbacks that are used and and the way, um, even the way he uses voiceover, often it's a character talking out of frame and then it jumps to that character saying something, which is another technique um, that you don't see that often anymore, especially, or at that time. Um, But he uses it really well in the limey. Um, But there is a sense of, um, I'm not just making a film to experiment with uh, topics or genres or prior films and homages that I like or that I love. Um, I'm making a movie about a particular sort of idea and ideas and, and I'm working with a writer who I've done something with that really wasn't a success. Um, so to kind of come back and to work in this realm and, and, and in, in this moment of his career, um, it's really kind of uh, heartfelt or heartening to to see him working at this high of a level because um it's a shame that you know that this film didn't do as well as it did in, in the box office besides new york and la where it did well um because it feels less experimenty and and just more uh fleshed out it, it it it's a ready masterpiece and uh for a film that's stuck between movies that people have seen more often um that's a real feat to accomplish for a director.
0: Yeah. It's I mean, it's funny that especially during this period here in the late nineties and and the early aughts of Soderbergh's career. And and I think now to a later extent in his sort of like later period here as we get into like the 2010s and and uh even early 2020s, uh it's it's often his his lesser seen or less successful works that to me wind up being the ones that are more resonant. I think that this one, you know, in, in the realm of those other ones, much as I I I do really love Out of Sight. I think it's about as good a movie as you could possibly, you know, make and at, at that level and end of that type. Um, also adore Aaron Brockovich. I think Traffic is still one that I, I defend readily as well, despite I think some people maybe having turned on it a little bit and, and its perspective maybe souring in in the last like two decades. Uh, but this one just, it, you know, completely just pierced all the armor I had put up to try to like kind of block it out or, or, you know, any anticipation of what I thought it was going to do. Uh, it, it, completely struck that away immediately. Solaris, another one, as you know, said on paper, I had a physical allergy to, because I love the Tarkovsky version so much. Um, and that wound up, you know, when I finally did watch it being a masterpiece, I love a lot of his like little, you know, more formally inventive features that he's done in the the last handful of years. Um, Unsane is one specifically that pulpy as shit, but uh, just the formal <laughs> qualities of that being shot on the iPhone and the sort of claustrophobic quality of it and Claire Foy, uh, I, I adore. And and I think that he he finds purpose for those experiments, as you said. I think he's someone who who just I think is is so good as an auteur of marrying both his experimental impulses and the formal necessities and imperatives of the movie and the story he's trying to tell.
1: He's almost the the flip side or the B side to a Tarantino or, or a PTA who they take their time w- with making a feature and they really want it to be, um, to live up to their kind of name and, and their history and, the, and their filmography. Whereas Soderbergh is taking risks. He's taking chances. Um, it it almost at a similar rate to what Woody Allen did for a number of years where it felt Mm -hmm. like it was one movie a year and there's not many directors who could work at that pace. Um, But with, with Soderbergh, yeah, there is a sense of experimentation and um, I'm a big fan of let them all talk, which was a straight HBO max COVID release. Mm -hmm. Um, Another film, uh, like you said, of Solaris on paper, it's kind of like, I don't, I don't know what, how you make this a movie or how you make this something um, that's worth sitting through. And yet you're complete, completely absorbed by the characters and this one setting of them on a, on a cruise ship. Um, and uh, that curiosity that Soderbergh has for, as a director and as a creator uh, certainly sets him apart from other people. Um, and I mentioned the four movie run with Out of Sight, The Limey, Aaron Brockovich in Traffic, um, I'd add Ocean's Eleven to that because that that's kind of the, <laughs> the, yeah. the top of the mountain in terms of um, mainstream recognition, but also rewatchability. Um, and for him to make The Limey uh, in the middle of that run, m- movies that are sort of bigger, made to be bigger commercial hits, um, I think it kind of proved to himself that he can still... He can play with various uh, budget restrictions and um, kind of tonal and, and thematic restrictions as well and still make just as good, if not better, of a movie. And I think that kind of propelled him for this third phase of his career, the kind of uh, films that we see him now, The, like you said, the, the Unsanes of the World, The Haywire, The Let Them All Talk, uh, The Laundromat. He can um, kind of come in and out. And regardless of what the setting is or or what the genre is, um, he can instill. There's a, there's a youthful exuberance to a director who's now been around for um, three decades um, or even more. He's been around for four decades, um, and uh, that's always exciting with him. And and uh, you don't always see that with with directors who are. Um, who have been around or who are just as old or experienced. There's a stubbornness that sets in, um, but I don't think he's ever had that. He's had the opposite.
0: Matt, I hate to put you on the spot if you've never thought about this before, but uh, I was wondering if you had top of mind your top five Steven Soderbergh pictures. And I only ask because he's got so many of them, you know, obviously with some of our directors, not a, not a you know, huge array of choices and, and possible titles but uh you know i i, I think i when i was reviewing I, I think i've seen something like 17 18 of his films now and it's it's kind of crazy to me to think like that still means that there are like significant blind spots in in his filmography but uh but do you have like five top of mind that you would consider your your sort of pantheon of greats if you were like programming a Soderberg marathon
1: yeah, I mean, that would be a fun marathon to uh, to program, first of all. Um, second, yeah, th- that that Matt Rushmore looks good. And first, I'd have to take the limey. I mean, we, we've only spent about an hour, hour and a half almost uh, discussing it for good reason. That would be number one. Um, number two would be Out of Sight, uh, which I think is just his best movie. And, and you kind of said so much as well in, in that it just feels... Um, both like the arrival of of a director that's been around, but that finally um, found his voice and and, uh, his sort of uh, character tropes that that he wants to evoke. Um, I think that would be number two. Number three, Aaron Brockovich. I'm also a big fan of it, like you are. Mm -hmm. Um, I saw it at a time, I think around the time it came out. I must have been... Maybe twelve or thirteen. I, I saw it on TV in, in Boston at my friend's house in the summer, um, and I remember really liking it back then, even though I can, kind of didn't really know what was it, what it was about fully. Um, but but there was a, that movie does you know kind of work on so many different levels and it's a fascinating story. But Julia Roberts um, knocks it out of the park um, for probably Sex Lies and Videotape. Uh, Again, kind of amazing dialogue and you kind of wonder if Soderbergh wrote more of his films, what they, what that would be like. I know he's co-written a lot, but um, he hasn't written something fully. And five, um, man, oh, I think Ocean's Eleven. I'm, I'm going to be tacky and, and go with the, <laughs> the, 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 the mainstream favorite. I, I, I do love Magic Mike. Uh, I do like the informant a lot, actually, if there was a bubble, um, boy to, to my top five, the informant is really close to it. Um, I, I remember seeing it with my first girlfriend in college and I was like, we were both like laughing hysterically at it. We had no idea what we were going to watch, but, um, I think Ocean's 11 is five though. That's y- y- you got to put it in there.
0: Yeah. I mean, it is just like a, a infinitely watchable movie, um, just incredible entertainment. I, I, I think that we have a lot of overlap in ours, Matt. I think that I would probably also put, in any given order, Sex, Lies, Videotape, Out of Sight, and now probably this film, after having watched it, in my top three. Uh, I think my other ones are probably Solaris, which I think is one of his undersung masterpieces, uh, and then, you know, my, my like curveball is probably contagion Oof. out of all of his like later period works there. Um, I think it's certainly taken on new textures uh, in a post COVID world. Uh, but, you know, in 20, what was it, 2013, 2014 when that film came out, um, just the, the, the level of, uh, very similar to, to like the actual experiences that we observed during uh, our, our own pandemic response uh, just makes it a very powerful watch now in in like 2023. But uh, you can't go wrong. I mean, he's got so many bangers. I, he, he makes more good movies than bad movies. I, I'm not sure, you know, he, he probably kind of on one hand how many I would actually call, you know, kind of clunkers in his filmography and, and the man just likes to work. Like you said, he, he takes big swings. He takes gambles and I'm excited for the next, uh, six Soderbergh movies that we'll probably get in a span of four years or something (laughs) like that. So very, very exciting stuff. Um, I think with that, we have arrived at the end of our conversation around the limey and Steven Soderbergh. Uh, go watch it. Folks, uh, you will love it. You will be moved by it. I resisted for a long time, and Matt Polenki, I am so thankful to you for finally pushing me over the edge and getting me to watch what is now one of my favorite Steven Soderbergh movies. So thank you very much for that, and thank you so much for for coming back and hanging out with me today.
1: Yeah, of course. It was a pleasure. This film is so special. Um... And I I love hearing people's thoughts on it after they do watch it, because I think they are surprised more often than not. Um, And uh, yeah, I can't wait to watch another Soderbergh movie that'll probably be straight to streaming and made on an iPhone um, and about (laughs) some topic that we can't put our finger on because he's a chameleon and uh, we got to love it.
0: Absolutely. Matt, where can uh, people find you and your work around the Internet?
1: um so you can follow me on on twitter at yagerwatch 68 um he was a hockey player for for the penguins uh you could also find my work on for the gutter review formerly neotext um also a massive cinema and uh i have a couple pieces coming out on uh, filmcred.com so lo- look out for those and uh, watch The Limey on Pluto TV. Sorry to plug that free streamer, but <laughs> just saying that, that's how I watched it last night and uh, no complaints.
0: No, we love Pluto. We, we love all the people streamers around here. The Tubies of the World, um, Plex has a lot of of a lot of fun titles right now. I've been watching some of the um, Ranown westerns on Plex recently because they don't really have any good uh, streaming qualities right now. They, there's some physical releases in the works right now. I think that there's a Randolph Scott Ah, uh, box set that is out, and and a new one coming out um, from Criterion in July, but yes, Pluto Plex, 2 where wherever you can find something that has some built-in commercial breaks for you too, it's always always a nice place to go and watch some movies. Really, really, uh, you know, evokes that that classic feel of of a cable experience that we just don't get much of anymore. Uh, well, thank you again, Matt, and from our end of things, you can follow along with the show. At Hit Factory Pod, uh, you can subscribe to us for biweekly bonus episodes at Patreon.com/slash/HitFactoryPod. I will shout out our overlords. Their names are Linda, Jesse K, Jared Murray, Omar. Thank you all so much for your continued support, and we will catch you all the next time. See ya.